Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, here as always with my co-host Octavia Bright, who has very kindly dragged herself from her sick bed to be with us today. I have. It's so boring. I've been in bed for days, bored out of my brains. Um, but it's wonderful to see you. Yeah, it's great to see you too, and you don't look sick at all. I uh, You look I very well. Thank Beautiful. you. I'm sorry to everyone listening if I sound a little bit phlegmy and delightful. It just makes you more... Um, Sexy. <laughs> anyway, hi Octavia. Hi babe. Um, our theme today is one of my favorite literary forms, the novella. A book that you can read in a day or even one sitting. The novella is somewhat feared in contemporary publishing. I should know I work in it. But some of the most enduring works of literature from Death in Venice to Mrs. Dalloway to The Stranger can be included in this category. Our theme, as usual, is inspired by our guest, and the author we are interviewing today, I think, is a writer of very good, very short books. Octavia, can you introduce him for us? With pleasure. Cannon Jones is the author of The Long Dry, Everything I Found on the Beach, Blood, Bird, Snow, and The Dig, which won the Wales Book of the Year Fiction Prize and the Jerwood Uncovered Fiction Prize. His latest novel is Cove, an extract of which recently won the 2017 BBC National Short Story Award. The Independent called him one of the most talented writers in Britain. Um, he's fabulous and he lives in Wales. Yes. And we're really grateful that he came to see us. Yes, thank you, Conan. Um, so we will uh, be interviewing Conan on the show today. We will also be discussing the theme, which is the novella and the form of the novella and which novellas we really love. And finally, we will be giving our book recommendations along with Conan. So please stay tuned. I didn't do a pun this week. Will you forgive me? I will forgive you, but I'm sad about it. Stay tuned. Um, don't be short with us on literary <laughs> friction. There no, go. okay. Let's just, let's go. Here, here Here's our interview with Conan. Conan Jones, thank you so much for coming on Literary Friction. Thank you. So we've asked you to start with a reading. Do you mind setting it up for us? This is going to be the moment in my first, my, my latest novel when a man is hit by lightning. It's a very, very simple story. And he's gone out to scatter his father's ashes. He is holding his hands in the water, rubbing the blood from them when the hairs on his arms stand up. They sway briefly like seaweed in the current then lie down again. He looks up, a strange ruffle come across the surface. The birds had lifted suddenly and gone away, as if there was some signal. They are flecks now, a hiatus disappearing against the light off the sea. He is far enough out for the land to have paled in view. The first lightning strikes out somewhere past the horizon. At first he thinks it's some sudden glint. The thunder happens moments later and he feels sick in his guts. A metallic sheen comes to the water, like cutlery, like metal much touched. The white clouds go a sort of leaden at the edge. There was enough delay, he thinks, a delay, as he sees the rain, a thick dark band moving in and starts to paddle. Then there is a wire of electric brightness, a rumble that seems to echo off the surface of the water. He counts automatically, assesses the distance to land, another throb of light the coast still a thin wood-coloured line. The wind picks up, cold air moving in front of the storm, and then there is a basal roll, the sound of a great weight landing, a slow tearing in the sky. When it hits him, there is a bright white light. It's beautiful, and I think it gives a really good sense of, of your language and the way that you pick words so carefully, so thank you for reading that. Thank you. Um, I wanted to start by 
asking you about Wales, <laughs> as mm-hmm. I'm sure you get asked about a lot. You're from Wales. Um, yeah. And all of your novels, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, have been set somewhere in Wales, usually in rural Wales. Yeah, they're very much a product of the place I'm from. I'm a product of that place. And the stories have sort of grown out from that as much as I have. But with Cove specifically, I set out to try and to go from that in that everyone else was saying that Cullen Jones writes rural novels set in this part of Wales. They're very connected to the land and the landscape. They're about people's relationships with each other, the working relationships, physicality. So I wanted to write something which sort of removed all those things that I started to get right by casting a man out onto the ocean. But it's bizarre how this ocean could be anywhere, but it is still, I think, very, very firmly anchored in that part of the world. I mean, that's where it was created. That's the that's the sea I go out on in the kayak. It's the sea I see from the cliffs when I sit there. So, yeah, you can't really escape it. It's, it's interesting. How much of your description of the sea was based on that sort of specific... Uh, observation and how much was it more a general sense of what the sea is and what it's like? It's observational. I I think that comes from the way that I build stories in general. Uh, That is by seeing them. So the work that goes in for me is often the process of visualization. In an ideal world, I don't go near the desk until I can see the story in my head and I write as if I'm remembering, really, as if I'm watching. So it's a really visual way of generating narrative and that is the sea that I see. It's the experience I've had on that sea, um, growing up next to it all of my life and being on and off it and around it, near it. And what was important was to not be too specific with the coastline, if that makes any sense. There is there is reference to parts of the coast, so anyone that's local will know. They'll be able to pick up, okay, that's this part of the world, that's that. But actually, it needed to be universalised. So there's not much mention of colour. You know, the colour of the water is different in different seas um, so I avoided that sort of stuff but more textural stuff which water can can throw up in the, across the world is is there really to universalize it yeah and and for me this the salt <laughs> the salt and the physical sensation of salt on skin and in the mouth and you know like you said people people often talk about the body bodily nature of your writing um, and what really struck me about Cove is that you would think that in water there would maybe be a, a loss of a sense of bodiliness, but actually it's so strong. Yeah, and it's proximity to something so physical. Um, we do tend to cover ourselves in comfort and turn the heating to the temperature we want it to and shut the rain out and live in houses you can't hear the weather through the double glazing. And actually once you're out there in, in the environment, it's the salt on the skin is equivalent to the soil under the fingernails. It's it's something which you're just living with anyway. So it's an interesting balance to get a sense of fluidity into the story, but also the ash, the, the, the dry salt, the solidity of the kayak. These were, these were quite tricky balances in, in the writing of. Yeah, well, it felt to me very much like um, I've never been in a kayak. I've been in the sea, but I feel now having read Cove, I know what it's like. You know, it's a it's a really um, effective way of bringing an experience like what the the protagonist goes through in Cove, which is a very extreme experience, into the proximity of your readers' bodies. You know, it, it really effectively and, works. And you had to put that that reader had to be on the kayak, really, which again was a tricky thing to do because you've only got six seven foot of plastic to 
float the narrative on, to put the reader on, and everything has to stem from that. So that's what you were saying about the language and the precision in the language, the scantness in the language in some respects. Well, it's a very he's got very little to hand himself as a protagonist. So as the writer, you need very little to hand in some respects. You know, you've got to be just be calling on what would be there. And I think that is a way of, when you write like that, it does put the reader into the situation rather than outside it watching in. I learned a lot about the various components of a kayak as well. And I loved the specificity of the terms that you use to capture the kayak. Um, yeah, that was tricky too sometimes because you go, well, what is it? You know, I've got my own names for them. And then this, so you're going, wait, I need to say, what is this? The screw hatch? Is that the bay? Is that the bay back bay? The back in the in back bay? The, the stows? Um, because there's actually not that much kayak literature out there to draw <laughs> Shocking. From, so I don't know, I have no idea why, but yeah, it doesn't seem to be a vast amount there. Um, and we, you were talking a bit about universality, which I think when you write a book set out in the sea, you're always going to be playing with this idea of the many stories and myths and um, ideas associated with this body of water. Um, and at the same time, you know, it's a very specific story about a very specific man. Um, and again, I'm sure you've been asked this before, but one can't help but think about something like The Old Man in the Sea by, by Ernest Hemingway, which of course, again, is is about one man sort of floundering out in the sea and, and his battle, if you will, with, with um, external forces of nature. So were you thinking about that long tradition of this kind of literature? And if you were, what were you trying to avoid and what were you trying to evoke in your own um, entry into the canon? I think it was more to do with making sure that you didn't get it wrong when there's a book as strong as Old Man and the Sea out there. If you're going to go into that same territory, you have to make sure that it isn't entirely referential to it, that it does have its own integrity as a story that it's that is real and that it's not... Well, I say it's not just a sort of half-done copy of something which already exists. And unbeknown, well, I, I'd thought of this story about casting someone out, and I'd made notes for years. I didn't realise that when I, until I looked back through notebooks. I think there's a note from 2012 that says, man gets pulled out to sea by fish. And I mean, what are you thinking? That's been done. You know? So obviously I'd <laughs> abandoned this idea. You know? So, you know, you have these moments of madness when you think you've come up with something original. I was also out on a kayak, and there was a bumblebee in, in the water and I sort of fished it out with the paddle, with the paddle and put it on the, the deck of the kayak to dry out and it stayed with me and then flew off when we got closer to shore as it had dried out. And that set this idea up of what if you were stung and had anaphylaxis and you were disabled out there. So that note had gone in too. Uh, various notes went in. It took a long time to come up with the obvious one, which was actually just to fuse it all together with that strike of lightning. But in the, in the approach to doing the book, I did reread Old Man and the Sea, I read uh, Moby Dick, which is obviously very similar, nice small, short book. <laughs> and, um, but I sort of got my hands on lots of things. Uh, but I was very, very keen to make sure it was authentic to, the, to where it was set, even though it had to be universal, and that it didn't just, to say, b become this referential sort of man-against-nature thing, because it's not so much that, I don't think. No, for me, it's very much also about loss, and uh, it hasn't... Um an emotional depth to it that's not just about his perilous situation, which I thought was very interesting as well, you know, the, the way that the mind plays tricks and those kind of things. Yeah, the otherness, and I guess the the idea of putting the father's ashes there without giving too much away, the idea of someone on the shore, the book is really about relevance and, and, and how we, 
we are created by our relevance to other people. So in that respect, it's a love story as much as it's an adventure story. Um, and I would also argue this man against nature phrase that suggests nature's got it in for you, but actually nature's just going about its business. And you, you, that's was, that was trying to get that through in the book too, that he's the one that's got to survive. It's not personal. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you about superstition as well, because at the end of the book, you have a little note about, um, is it a wren's feather? It's a wren's feather. Yeah. I wanted to, I wonder if you could talk about that a little. It's interesting when you work on the right books that things sort of magnetize to it, things, the coincidences, almost as if they're gathering to, to keep you at it, to keep you going and say, yeah, you're on the right, you're on the right track. So the wren feather was in there. Uh, we had a cat that would frequently bring wrens. It was a mouser, didn't really go for birds, but because wrens are so mousy and small and flick about in the lower undergrowth, every now and again she caught one, didn't really know what to do with it. So I had this wren feather idea and to use it as a memory trigger. And it was after I'd written that down, really, and I was looking to thicken the book up, I started researching into talismans and, and mythologies of sea safety and just this extraordinary moment of finding, keeping a wren's feather, particularly if it was the wren was hunted on Boxing Day or St. Stephen's Day and then you keep this and it would keep you safe at sea. Then later down the line, the Celts believed that it would help you, well, protect you from lightning. So this is extraordinary kind of... Whoa, okay. That was an accident, but it was an extraordinary one. Do you believe that there's anything more to it than an accident? I think, like I said, that if you if you chase the right story, it starts to run with you at a certain point. It starts to, things start to magnify. You know more than you know. You, there's so much. If you read all the time and you're interested and you take things on board a lot, I think you store a huge amount. And the act of writing, even if, as I said, you have that visual idea and you just write as if you're remembering watching, the stuff that's up in, in the kind of matrix of your mind there that falls into that is extraordinary. So how, did it, was it something I knew years ago? Is it something I just skipped read? Is it something I overheard? I think there are strange pointers about a story being the right story to be working on, and equally the other way around. And I don't try to question that too hard, but certainly I would say there's a degree of, Synergy. I don't know what it is, but you know, you know when you know. Hmm. And speaking about this story in Cove, I mean, it's a story of real danger and peril. Um, and that obviously drives the narrative, but it's hard to read sometimes. There's there's a real brutality to it. Um, it this man is severely injured and stuck out at sea. And I wonder um, why you wanted to write about that and if there was any difficulty, especially when it was... The, in, in the more sort of intense elements of, of his condition for you? In terms of, so you've got, once, you, once you go down a certain route and choose to write a certain thing, you can't, you can't back out. So mm. the dig, for example, that was always going to be an allegory of the way we try to build a safe space for ourselves and how something can come and attack that. So this idea of someone digging into a badger set was the perfect kind of melding uh, image there but once you start writing about that you can't you can't back out it's really dreadful things happen it's a horrific thing so similarly with cove the physical state that he was in you can't hit him by lightning and go out oh, that hurt a bit you know that's like banging my funny bone but never mind you know he had to be obliterated and i did i did quite a lot of reading first-hand accounts of people that had been struck on the water um and 
so some of it though is a bizarre thing because it creates some of it creates a beauty like a fishing rod on fire on the water because the carbon explodes but and and the beautiful um lightning flowers they call them um mm. that happens when the capillaries burst on on the strike so there's some lovely imagery that goes on there but yes ultimately he's in he's in a mess and his memory's in a mess i don't see that hard i, I actually approach it technically i think of what happens is graham green says there's a this sort of piece of ice in your heart if you if you if you write you need that and what I tend to find is I can work quite technically on a thing, but it's actually afterwards that it, it hits me. It can be weeks or months afterwards that I sort of fall into a gibbering heap of emotional kind of wreck. And it's, I think it's the I think it's usually the the um, the kind of effect of that. Yeah, trauma can take a while to it develop. It does, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I say your your duty as the writer is to handle that and to not get swayed by it and to not back out of it. So to be as accurate as you can. Also, with the way that I try to write, I don't really describe how someone feels or does I try and make the reader feel that way so it's important to use the language to actually make the reader cringe or feel nauseous or you know that's what you're trying to do not yeah just tell them that happened make it make it happen to them but so. it worked it <coughs> at times it felt like observing a surgical <laughs> procedure but in an amazing way I mean I felt like a vulture you know coming down and finding him in this boat um but talking about language and you know the relationship with with how to tell a particular story. Um, you've said that, that this started as a much longer novel and you cut it down, um, which fascinated me. It's always interesting to think about. Is obviously, when you read the finished product, it feels perfect and exactly like it was always that way. Um, what made you come to that decision and how did you go about it? The dig originally was called Traces of People and the story of that went right back to the hills above Rome in the 1930s to an Italian who's interned sent to Manchester you know goes to Manchester and is in interned when the war breaks out sent to the Isle of Man released to work on a West Wales farm falls in love blah blah, blah. things play out and then the, the final section was the story of more contemporarily of a badger bait and a farmer and some overwash and it was 90,000 words but I, I cut sixty. I cut sixty thousand out in a one because when I read it back after three years of work, I went, "That's just not necessary. We'll get rid of that 60. So I had that experience. I had that confidence. And when I first worked on Cove, it was around the twenty plus thousand mark, but it just wouldn't work. And I was too. I think I ran. I ran essentially from the dig coming out in the January, and it came out to a much higher level of exposure than I'd been used to, and to an extraordinary. Uh, was extraordinarily well received and I think it was just my reaction to sort of go and crawl under my rock and, and write and go oh, whatever it's fine I'm just gonna I'm working on another one now I'm not taking any of this seriously but I was right I just wrote it quite I felt that I was overwriting it I didn't have the time to see it all properly in my head so I was trying to work at the cliff face I was trying to work out the desk and work out what was happening so it was m very overwritten and it was a much bigger story both sides much more happened before and, and, and stuff happened afterwards and but I n needed to give it to Granter for the contractual deadline and say, look, it's not another gritty farm novel. It's something different. Is that OK? And they loved it. They said, this is great. It's really good. But it's not there. But it's the first draft, which I knew. And then there was this bizarre process of, right, what you need is you need to swell it out and say a bit more about this, do this, do that. But every time I went back to it, it just got worse and worse. I was in a real dogfight with it. And there was a point in June, I think it was already up on Waterstone's sites and had his ISBN and things like that. But I had a conversation with Grant and said, look, I'm parking this. This is, it's not working. Go, but it is, it's so <laughs> nearly there. 
um, please. And every time they sort of said, well, you just flesh this out a bit. What happened was I basically made it shorter every time. So they were going, stop telling him to make it bigger. But I just parked it. I said, look, it's not going to work as it is. I need time with it. And I walked away from it for a few months. And in that point, the, if you like, the, what stayed behind that process happened of being able to see it in my head. And I went back and I wrote it pretty much in a one Some of the sentences are identical to the early drafts. But I started again and finished it instinctively. Bang, that's the book. And gave it to Granter, who thought it was astonishing, told me 20 minutes why they thought it was astonishing, and then said, but we can't help noticing it's only 11,500 words. What are we supposed to do? Um, so I said, well, you said it was astonishing, so publish it. And there was this really funny moment of, yeah, but we'll never get it past the finance guys and this. And then I thought, I, well, I produced what I thought was a very strong biblical quote, said, listen, if you build it, they will come. <laughs> and left the building, thought, which, is that King John? Bible? Which one is it? Which book of the Bible is that? Looked it up, I was like, no, that's Kevin Costa in a baseball film. But it did the trick, so it did work. Wow, and, and you cut it down even further, didn't you, for um, a New Yorker story? So, yeah, the American publishers who I've been with passed on it because of the, the, because of the size, I, I, I suppose. They said, look, it is just too short. It's too short a risk. And they said, can you put other stories around it? And it's something I really didn't want to do. I did not want to put different stories around this. It's very much a standalone book. So we looked for other avenues. And just out of nowhere for me, really, the, the New Yorker in touch and said, look, we love this, but we can't, we can't publish it all. Can you halve it? And I think that was a Tuesday. And they said, yeah, but we'll need to sort of do this by Friday. Um, they already had an idea of the shape, which was totally in line with what I would have done and what I would have dropped. But there was just this incredibly intense process of, and I just started a job as well. So sort of job during the day and then just really cutting it down and making sure that there wasn't any cross-references. If you, okay, if we've taken that out, we can't now say this. So just smoothing it out. But it's a really interesting way of tipping your own rhetoric on the head when my rhetoric would have been it might only be eleven and a half thousand words but you try cutting one of them and then you have to cut six thousand of them <laughs> that was quite a thing but it did have its own integrity then and it had a different title called the edge of the shoal then bizarre things happened because new yorker used big drop caps for every paragraph and because it's a guy on his own in a kayak, there's lots of he's, him's, his, and there's just all these big H's. So they said, we're going to have to change the opening sentences of these paragraphs. So even little things like that. And then it went forward to the BBC yeah, Short Story and Award. And went on and, to win the Short Story Award. And went on to win that. So, I mean, I think what we talked about earlier about that, when you're on the right story, there's this bizarre kind of shine to it. It just has something. And, and I didn't abandon it when I nearly did. And I did make the choice to make it 11,500 words. And we did halve it. And it just seems to keep keep its integrity. It's, it's, a, it's a, yeah, strong little thing. How do you feel about those two things in relation to each other, Cove the book and then the short story? Um, do you think of them as two completely different things or one version of the same story? I think the important thing was to make sure that the short story wasn't just a sort of cove with bits missing, that it had to have its own integrity and it therefore became more physical in some ways. So Cove is more of the otherness. In Cove, there's more deliberately shifting tenses to create a sort of unsteady surface to the narrative. Cove has more depth and more space in the sky, if you like, whereas at the edge of the shell had to bring the reader a bit more viscerality, a bit more present uh, to, to the actual events that were happening. And 
So that was tricky, really, to make sure that you still had a sense that was wider than the kayak, but without the sort of devices I was able to use in the longer piece. Mm. Let's talk about the dig because that's come up um, and it was the first book I read of yours and what made me fall in love with your writing. Um, it's, a, it's a beautiful little book. Again, a, a little book, as you, hmm. as you mentioned. Um, and it, it's about a farmer who um, is dealing with grief and I don't want to go too much more into it without sort of spoiling the book if you can say that about the dig I don't know <laughs> can one do a spoiler for a novel um who knows but um and also who his land is sort of invaded by um a badger and and by badger baiters um and and the first thing I wanted to ask you to talk about is the idea of badger baiting which I admit when I um first read this book I'd never heard about it or what it was or why it happened um and actually spent a lot of time on Wikipedia reading about badger baiting oh god I hope you didn't see any horrible pictures I saw a few horrible yeah, it's pictures an intense thing. Um, but I um I wanted to ask you first of all why you wanted to write about badger baiting and also I I did get the sense that you wanted to understand why somebody would do something like this you have this this wonderful quote about a little boy who comes on on the sort of dig with his um, his father, uh, he had to develop an idea of hatred for the badger. I really like that sentence, and it I, it said a lot. I think about how we live in the world as well. Yeah, I mean, the idea. As I said so. If you bear in mind that the original intent was much was part of a much bigger book, and then as it became clear that that was really the the, the nut, that was the thing to concentrate on. The overriding thing was to be writing, a, as I said, about the way we try to create safe spaces for ourselves, try to protect things that we care about, but how, how a force can break into that safe space. And therefore, the allegory of the badger, the badger set and the invasion of that was perfect. Pretty much everything I write has a, has a fairly key central allegory. So the long dry, the cow, just, which they do when they're carving, just puts its head down, pushes through fences and gates and just goes off, just proceeds. And that's, you know, we do that with life and relationships and careers and things. We don't get our head up. So that was the central allegory to that. And that informs the human situation around the story. Similarly with the dig, it was really the, 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 the key thing was to have that sort of center to the book. But once you start writing about something like that, you can't chicken out. And... I've also, because I've grown up in that environment, seen dead badgers on the road. Yes, some of them have been hit by cars, undoubtedly, but I've, in 40-odd years, never come close to hitting a badger. And you think, why are they go Why are there more at certain points? Why are they at places? Where why are they on straights? You know, someone either hitting them deliberately. And you just think, I've always felt that they're being chucked out of the back of a car because they've been, been uh, baited or, or poisoned or some other way culled. So I did all the research and that I didn't want to be making assumptions, and I did do the research. I did. Um, I, I had lots of talks with the, the sort of local badger officer, for want of a better word. They, 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 the David Badger guy um, saw some pictures that what has been seen cannot be unseen, and also the assumptions that you make about people. I, I try not to fictionalize that in some respects if it wouldn't happen. So you do have people who arrive in in my local town with the tattoos and the skinhead and the one big dog and the one little dog and, you know, the, the combat trousers. And you think, okay, well, he looks like a badger baiter, but that's really bad to think that. 
So I did actually create aliases and, and went into dog breeding sites and ended up on certain forums where they'd suddenly flash up a web address. As long as you had trust, as long as they trusted you and you have to use certain languages, I was picking up on sort of ways they were saying things without saying things. You started to do that detective work and then they'd go, okay, look at this. And then you'd, you'd go to a website which would be up for a very short period of time, but it would be pictures of you know, dogs with their throats ripped and th things sewn up and, and things, you know, it was just fairly horrific and the kind of trophyism of it. I did about as much as I needed to do and I went, right, that's quite enough of that. That's yeah, it sounds like yeah. some deep undercover work. <clears throat> yeah, and it's that, it's that weird thing. So as a process, it's bizarre and it's gone on, it's gone for hundreds of years, you know, badger in the bag, you know, they used to put a badger in the bag and hit it with a stick and, and a badger in the barrel used to nail, a, nail its tail in to a barrel and and throw their dogs in, it, in pubs and see if they could pull it out. I mean, it's a sort of insane... Because it's a very strong animal, and it's a very stubborn animal, and actually it has to be pushed to fight, but when it does, it does have weaponry. And for some reason, people people want that in their life. So, yeah, when you say, what is it about? I think there's that idea of bullying, which is a very strange thing, that, that sort of need to... There's, there's, a, there's different types of cruelty, but that one is particularly articulate and particularly needless and odd, I think. Do you think it's fair to say... Um, that it's a book about masculinity? I think, you know, that's something that people speak about a lot with the stuff that I write. And, you know, sometimes it's said in, in a quite positive way. Other times it's used as a criticism, really, that it's a bit macho. But I think the dig particularly is where is the, uh, where, where is the outlet for masculinity in an emasculated world? Actually, if you do physical tasks all day, every day, you don't really need to go and prove that you can you know lift go to the gym and lift this amount you you've just picked up a sack of fertilizer or you've you know had to pull the pump the tractor tire up with a foot pump or something right <laughs> you know you know you're man enough for those sort of things but i think we live in a quite a confused world so the what i see in a lot of the so it's, it's from various areas from urban areas that come to the region i'm from and that's when the levels of the baking things go up obviously there's indigenous things but quite often it's people who live in suburbia there's it's a weird thing so is it masculinity is it a downside of masculinity to have that need to just hurt to, to break to show power um to show crewmanship in some respects or is it that father something as you said the, the father taking his boy along and having to the boy sort of having to understand that this is what's required of him what i liked about it was that it to me felt like a co like a complex um quite sensitive kind of exploration of these different things and the different ideas behind masculinity, some of which are positive, some of which are negative, some of which are embodied by the characters, some of which are rejected, because there's also a very tender love story happening in there as well. And, and uh, masculinity, in some respects, there's a husbandry as well that goes through it, and even the, in the sort of criminal element, the, 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 the bad guy, if you like, still has this quite tender care for his dogs and he has a responsibility. So. As with Cove, and it's something which I'm very slow to pick up on, being as it's me that's doing it, but I realise that actually a lot of my work is about relevance. It's about that, the relevance people have to each other and how that then actually creates who they are. So the idea of husbandry, the idea of responsibility, the idea of physical tasks, but interestingly in, in, in those processes, it's very much a team game, I think. It's always these, but the roles are dictated by what you're physically able to do and who's best at whichever physical task. 
But as soon as you remove one of those people out of the equation, the tasks become incredibly hard to navigate. Yeah, and sometimes the natural environment pushes back as well. Yeah. Which often, causes all kinds yeah, of things. Yeah. yeah. I want to end by coming back to our theme today, which is the novella or the short novel, as as we're calling it, because I think novella is sometimes a misleading term, which um, it's been interesting to hear you talk about how that's not necessarily a form that you aspire to, but your books do seem to end up in that form. So I, I'd love you to talk a bit about what you think is special about having a novel that somebody could read in one sitting and, and what you think maybe the limitations are in terms of your own writing. Um, and in the future, if, if that's a form you want to stick to or something you want to range away from. Generally, the story is what makes the choice. As Cove would not work at 25,000 words, it needed to be an 11,500 word short novel, which is what I feel that it is. But then it could work as a 6,000 word short story. But that is a short story. It's not. It's it's interesting. So, what you have to do in a short in the shorter form is is make sure that everything is every single word is doing a job. Now, I'd like to pretend that larger work is oft is, is that's also the case with larger work, but it's simply not. There's generally vast amounts of passenger writing. It's describable perhaps as the difference between an event which you're 100% committed to or a journey where actually there is time to stare out the window and go for a coffee you know those are the different things with a larger book you can digress and you can fill in backstory you can explain things you don't have time to do that in shorter form so the explanations of things have to be tied up within what's actually readable in in very small amount of time the words all have to do jobs the implications have to be packaged in there and what it does is it puts a huge amount of trust on the reader to be able to have that very natural process to all of us of assumption and of reading. We all sit in cafes, we people watch, and we make assumptions about who that person in the corner is. And so that's what you're really trying to make happen is give readers just enough information for them to start creating the pictures and the assumptions. Even with the landscape, people say, oh, the descriptions are amazing. The descriptions of the beach and everything I found on the beach is wonderful. I said, well, find it. And there's very little there. There's just you know a bit of quartz catching the moon. There's a clack of stones. But what's happened is that reader's made their own beach and they have a really strong relationship with it. And I think that's why I love the form. I love, I, I write because I you know, loved reading and that I'm sitting down for an hour and a half, two hours, and I'm going to read a book from start to finish. We will quite happily give 90 minutes to a football match or to a film, but how often do we sit down and go, no, I'm going to read for two hours? And the ability to be able to read something from start to finish in that time and have that complete experience is probably what's pushed me to short novels. And it is an intense style, so can it go much longer? You know, can you have 70,000 words in that style? I don't think you can. I think it would be exhausting to read. So if I do write something longer because the story's there, I'll probably adjust the approach. Well, I certainly had an experience reading your novels. Sorry, that sounds, that sounds really... It's <laughs> a nice thing I didn't say to Carry <laughs> play. Pull yourself anyway. together. Anyway, thank you for coming on, Cunnan. You've been amazing. Um, thank you. <laughs> we really enjoyed reading your work and, um, and hearing you talk about it. So, so thank yeah, you very much. Thanks for having me. Thank you.
Welcome back to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt here with Octavia Bright, and we are here to discuss today's theme, which is the short novel or the novella. So um, I think we should just start, as we often do, by defining what we mean by novella. Um, according to the internet, uh, this is a form that's usually over 7,500 words, but under 40,000 words. Um, and it's a form that's been around for ages. So Boccaccio's The Cameron was actually a series of novellas. Uh, but it was only fashioned into a genre in the late 18th century and early 19th century, probably by the Germans. Um, Those efficient Germans. Yeah, always the Germans, isn't it? Um, today, novellas are usually grouped with novels in publishing, mainly because publishers fear the word novella um, for a variety of reasons. One is that they don't think readers want to invest in a very, very short novel, also because of literary prizes and boring things like that. Um, and, you know, as we've talked about, on the show before the idea that a novel has to have a certain length is kind of ridiculous anyway it's a ridiculous conceit confined by capitalism and um the limits of what you can actually fit on a page and bind within a book binding length um so i think that we should be relatively loose with our definition today if you agree octavia i would love to be you know i love to be loose Carrie. okay great well let's be loose um loose women Carrie and Octavia. Oh, stop it. Um, <laughs> um, so I, the way I think of novellas is it's a short novel that's usually under about 200 pages. Sounds pretty fair to me. Yeah. And I like to think of it as something that I could conceivably read in one sitting or if not that, maybe just a day. Yeah. I think that's a good parameter to put around it. Okay, good. I fucking love novellas. I love them. Yeah, me too. I love them and I don't understand why oh uh, like you said the reason that the literary establishment is has up to this point been really hesitant around them is to do with capitalism and you know prizes and all the rest of it but actually I mean a lot of people I know love reading short fiction yeah so it seems like the industry hasn't caught up with what's really going on yeah and I think it is changing I think um, Max Porter who we ha had on the show um, wrote what is a novella um, of course Conan Jones is definitely writing something close to novellas and um and there have been successes with shorter books lately which i which i think means that people's tastes are changing but these things always fluctuate as well and um and as i said in the introduction a lot of our greatest novelists some of their most well-known work perhaps it's because what people it's what people actually read because they can actually have the find the time to read it are novellas so you know mrs dalloway from virginia wolf or of mice and men by john steinbeck i mean the list goes on and on and on and on if we we could just spend an entire show just listing famous novellas which i don't think anyone wants including me <laughs> <laughs> so i'll stop um but let's um i don't think there will be much friction around the idea that novellas are great. So why don't we just talk about what's great about them? Yeah, I'm down for that. What is great about novellas, Octavia? Well, Carrie, I I love I love intensity in reading and I love entering into really taut, intense environments when I'm reading a book. Um, it's one of the reasons I thought the Dick Cunnan's book, one of Cunnan's books that we talked about is so extraordinary because it's so intense, <clears throat> brilliantly intense. Um, and I think, you know, he said in the interview, that the 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 kind of tone of his books would maybe become exhausting if they were really really long. I'm kind of up for that to be honest, but I know lots of people aren't. Um, but that's what I love about novellas. And when I was thinking about all of the novellas that I have loved, um, 
that tends to be the thing that they have in common, that it's a very, very intense experience of one kind or another, whether that's a language thing, like with something like a clockwork orange, for example, which obviously exists in its own dialect and would be really trying, I think, if it were longer. Um, or if it's something like Bonjour Tristesse by Francois Sagan, which is something I've talked about on the show before, which is really distilled and pure in its kind of emotional intent or something like The Blessing by Nancy Mitford which again is very much zeroing in on a very specific kind of emotional experience and 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 remains very taut around that um, so that's something I love about them that they can push you into a corner kind of um, and you don't mind because you're not going to be in it for very long so you can kind of grit your teeth if you need to and go there and then emerge from it without feeling too wretched do you mm. know what I mean yeah no I do know what you mean and I um you know academics and thinkers have talked about the novella in that respect so um someone called Warren Carew who I've never heard of before but he's an hey, academic hey, hey. also I'm an academic and a thinker yes. excuse me <laughs> I'm sorry <laughs> yes you're right um <laughs> no I'm teasing let's talk about Warren <laughs> Warren <laughs> because he is a man he is an authority obviously, obviously. um I defer to Warren. He said that the novella is most often concerned with personal and emotional development rather than with the larger social sphere. And that's a bit of a different argument from what you're saying. But I think um, the short space of the novella means that it's not about, you know, it's not a middle March like novel that's capturing a community. It's often capturing an internal world or a very specific mood or place or story. Um, just one man getting hit by lightning in a canoe in the co in Cove. Or um, I was thinking about We Have Always Lived in a Castle by Shirley Jackson, which is Such a, a wonderfully book. creepy novella, mm. um, which is just about two sisters living in an abandoned house um, a above a village. And, um, you know, as the novel goes on, we realize what lurks beneath the surface. Um, it's interesting, though, because that, that contrast or that kind of definition is engaging with quite old-fashioned 19th century ideas about what the novel does. And actually, I would argue that there are longer novels that still don't engage with the social, external world that much. And you can, you do get bigger novels that are still very much about one character's very internal experience. Um, so I disagree with Warren. Oh. <laughs> you are getting a little bit of literary fiction. How exciting. It's the paracetamol, sweetheart. Yeah. It's doing all kinds of things to me. Um, no, I think I think you're right about that. But I do think with a longer novel, you have to stray beyond one idea or and one scene and one character. Because That's it's, true. it's basically unsustainable. Yeah. Especially if it's going to be a 500-page novel. I mean, I think that's very, very, very difficult to do. Um, and... What I would say is there's a real joy in reading a short novel, too. Like, you know, our, atten our attention is pressed these days. and it, But it always has been. And I think the I, this is something that Cunnan was talking about as well. There is a real pleasure in sitting down and being able to read a whole book and then get back up again. Um, that sort of intense experience is something that we don't often have with novels because we have to put them down. We have to read them in the, in the space that we find. And almost without, mm, maybe this isn't true, but some of the most intense reading experiences that I've had in my life and the novels that I love the most are novels that I've read when I'm on holiday or when I have time to just sit down and read the novel because being in that world is 
a much more intense experience. I always talk about reading Graham Greene's The End of the Affair, um, which I read while I was on a holiday. And I don't think I read it in one sitting, but I read it over a very short span of time. And that's actually a very quite a short book as well. Um, and it changed me. I felt I I came up for air at the end of that book and I felt like I was a different person. I'm mm-hmm. sure I've said this before on the show, but I, you know, that's what I love about novellas is that they have the ability to do that in a way that in that novels can't. Yeah, and you're much less likely to well, I'm much less likely to give up on a novella because I will read enough of it to hook my attention and then I'll be over halfway through, so I'll finish it. Um whereas, you know, longer novels you can find yourself wading through some padding before coming out the other side of it and getting re-engaged again and really committed again. But there are long passages in a lot of my very favorite, especially kind of old, older novels, um, where my attention wanders and I'm, I allow them to, I allow that to happen. I'm, I kind of commit to the form that that's probably going to be part of it. There will be stronger and weaker points in the, in the longness of the thing, I guess, maybe. Um, whereas in a novella, there's a real sense of when it's done well, when it's done effectively of mastery, I guess there's no space for that. So it's gone. And that's exciting. You have to cut things out that are unnecessary to the story that you're writing. Yeah. And there's a real economy of prose. And I don't, I don't think it's a mistake that a lot of famous writers of novellas are also, um, writers of famously taught prose. Yeah. Do you know what's interesting? When I was thinking about all of my favorite novellas, I was looking at my bookshelves yesterday, realizing they are full of novellas and they're full of Spanish and French language books, which are largely novellas. Mm. Because obviously reading in a language that's not your native tongue is challenging. Um, And I have waded through big, long novels in both French and Spanish and enjoyed it, but found it challenging. Whereas there's something amazing when you're reading in, in another language the sense of accomplishment of being able to finish a book and not needing to have your big old dictionary next to you for the whole way through. So that's one of the reasons I love Francoise Sagan. I can read her in French and I can get a lot from it. Or Gabriel Garcia Marquez, he wrote a lot of novellas, um, which I've loved reading in the past. I don't know if they would stand up to second reading, to be honest, like no one writes to the colonel, things like that. But if you are a languages student, you will probably have read a lot of novellas over the course of your education because they're easy to read as well and if you're teaching and when I was teaching I would set novellas sometimes because again you can expect students will will actually read them and come to class prepared so there's kind of there's all sorts of other um, factors as well aren't there that kind of tie us to these forms yeah and um, it's funny you bring up European novels because um, Micah Serfogel who who started up Pyrene Press who we interviewed on this show in our in our show about translation argued that um, the Europeans are much more comfortable with the form of the novella and uh, write more of them. And I think she's probably right about that. So maybe that contributes to the fact that um, you're reading so many novellas in other languages besides English. Um, Yeah, I think so. But I think you've also brought up the fact that you often assign novellas to your students. And I remember in high school, and I think this is true for most children in English classes, uh, we often read novellas because you assign them to children knowing that they're more likely to read them if they're short. Um, And also because the form of the novella, as we were talking about before, is more capable of holding a sort of single idea about the world that um, in its clarity is maybe a little more appealing to high school readers. Yeah, I think that's fair. um, Are a little less comfortable with 
more com- more complexity. No, that's not fair. I don't think that's yeah, fair. Yeah, that's but not fair. There is there there's a link to be made between the kind of fiction that a lot of people are reading in their adolescence and books that are aimed at teenagers, which don't tend to be hugely long. <laughs> and maybe it's a nice bridge from that kind of level of literature to a more mature voice that is not yet a massively daunting, you know, 600 page doorstop of a thing. Mm, mm. I don't know though. I think a lot of unfair things are said about teenagers and their ability to kind of concentrate and engage. I completely agree. I stand up for teenagers often. But also reading The Mayor of Casterbridge was was one of the worst experiences of my life. Fully, fully <laughs> imagine. <high> <laughs> Should we talk about our favorite novellas? Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, listen, I found this really hard because I realized, first of all, I've actually recommended a lot of my favorite novellas already on the show and other shows because I read so many of them and I love them. Um, so I wanted to recommend one by Bataille or Sagan or Bulgakov and realized I've done it all. Um, but then it re- I realized it gave me an excuse to talk about a book which is slightly longer than maybe a novella, but it's a short novel um, called Good Morning Midnight by Jean Rhys, who wrote The Wide Sargasso Sea. That's the book that she's most well known for, which was published in 1939. And the title is taken from an Emily Dickinson poem, which gives you a clue to the mood of the piece, mm. <laughs> which is not exactly cheery. Um, but it's, ah, uh, it is a heartbreaking, wonderful book. And precisely because of its mood it couldn't be any longer than it is and it's I I think it's like 176 pages or something um it's set in 1930s Paris and it's basically the internal monologue of a woman called Sophia Jansen who's an English English woman returning to the city of lights and she's on a quest for self-determination and she's mentally unstable she drinks too much she takes too many painkillers she's broke as fuck um and she drifts through this kind of experience of paris and depression and loneliness and really kind of soul level despair and sex and she's trying to work out her relationships to men in a very bodily quite destructive way um and it's so modern it's crazy when you think about when it was actually written it's so contemporary in her trying to make sense of her sexuality and her femininity and also just feeling adrift in a world that is full of violence and shame and pain you know she's in this interwar period where things were obviously very very tense and difficult um and it to me actually when I was flicking through it to sort of talk about it I just thought fuck it's actually really relevant right now again it feels um but yeah because it's it is hard to read and she is in pain and you do go there with her it it couldn't be longer than it is um and she uses the ellipsis a lot and she loses her train of thought a lot, which is not for everyone. I think people who are very into very plot driven books will find it very frustrating. But if you enjoy um, suspending yourself in a mood or in someone else's thought process, then you'll really love it. I think it's brilliant. Mm. She's just a phenomenal writer. I've also. never read anything by Jean Rhys. Jean Rhys. I think you'd really... Is it Jean or Jean? I say Jean. 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 <laughs> Jean. <laughs> but we can spice it up if you want. Jean Rhys. No, I've, I've been voice. meaning to read The White Sargasso Sea for years. I think you will love that book. Um, and I, and it's, I don't even know why I haven't read it yet. Well, there's a lot to read, you yeah. know? Yeah. I'll hold you to it, though. Well, you make her sound fantastic. Thanks. So I'm going to read one of those books that I read in high school. Um... And I haven't read it since high school, so uh, maybe I'll hate it if I come back to it. But it did leave a really strong impression on me, so I'm just going to talk about it anyway. Um, it's a book called Ethan Frome by Edith Wharton, um, a very famous novella by a very famous writer. 
And uh, it was published in 1911. It's set in a fictional town in the state of my birth and adolescence, Massachusetts. Um, and it features a doomed love affair and also a sledding climax. <laughs> I thought you said a sledding climax. <laughs> no, sledding. You call it sledging, don't you? Sledging. Yeah. I mean, I, it's not a word that I use. <laughs> you don't sledge? No. <laughs> Sorry. I'm not to surprised. Disappoint. But what does that say about nothing. me? No, I've been down anything. a hill on a tray in the snow. Is that the same? No. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't possibly understand my childhood. Anyway, I didn't have a doom love affair, nor a, I did have a sledding accident once, but we'll put that to one side. Um, so this novel, it's very atmospheric. It's very tragic. It's very charged. And I think as we were discussing, it's, its intensity is amplified by its short length. Um, you, you spend very little time with these characters, but the time you do spend with them is, um, you know, it is very intense. And this reading this novel left a real mark on my psyche, not least that sledding climax, which will just stay with me forever. Um, and also I was thinking about this novel recently or novella recently um, when the, the magnetic fields um, just released a, a new album called 50 song memoir, which is sort of Stephen Merritt talking about different years of his life and write and writing um, songs about it and one of the songs is called I think 88 Ethan Frome and it's a it's like a wonderful little song about Ethan, the novel Ethan Frome which which features a verse um, I first read you on my birthday and again up teen more times when will they make you a musical there have been far worse crimes <laughs> la 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 <laughs> Ethan from. I mean, how can you not love that? Listen, I'm frankly disappointed that you didn't sing it for us, Carrie. <laughs> Maybe Carrie has time. a beautiful singing voice, no, by the way, everyone. No, no, you do. It's really exquisite. We're really going off piece here. I don't care. I'm into I it. I should have used a sledding um, segue. segue there, I off piece is kind of sledding, no? Uh, Sledging. It's more. Suck it. I don't know. Anyway, you should all read Ethan Frome, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> my high school self would recommend that you read Ethan Frome, and my now self would definitely recommend that you listen to that song by The Magnetic Field. I will definitely start with the song. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, we will be back in a bit to give our book recommendations with Conan Jones. This is Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright, and we are back here also with Conan Jones to give our usual book recommendations. So Octavia, do you want to start? With pleasure. Um, recently, I, I've been on a real escapist bent, um, as still from last month. I just I can't really handle the world at the moment. So I've been reading Joan Didion's essays um, collected in a book called The White Album, which is amazing because I've basically been hanging out with Jim Morrison and a pair of his leather trousers. And it's it's rad. They, they look great on him and he's having fun and we're having fun. Um, no, it's brilliant. I love her writing. And, and I was inspired to go back to it by the documentary on Netflix at the moment about her life. Um, and it's just brilliant. She's a real master of the form and she weaves journalism and memoir and she's a fucking great storyteller at the bottom of everything. Um, and the essay, the eponymous essay opens with the line, um, we tell ourselves stories in order to live. And I think it's the truest thing anyone ever said. It's certainly true for me. Um, 
so yeah, it's been wonderful just hanging out in 60s, 70s and 80s America, which I mean was obviously deeply imperfect and her political take is, is caustic and witty and, and, and all the rest. Um, but for some reason it feels easier to handle than, than right now in the world. So I'm into it, I recommend it. I love her. I love her too, yeah. I mean, I kind of want to be her when I grow up. Do you think that's possible? I think you're nicer than Joan Didion. Oh, really? Yeah. I'm so nice, aren't I? Yeah, <laughs> maybe too nice. Um, I'll get over it one day. No, but uh, that, yeah, I, I really need to watch that documentary. Sounds it's, amazing. Uh, it's, I had to stop watching it halfway through. I was finding it too sad, actually. Isn't it meant to just be like a hagiography? Hey, hey, I've never said that word out loud. <laughs> Do you know what? Neither have I. <laughs> Cunning? That nope. word was when you nope. started it. So. <laughs> um, anyway, nope. Write in readers. Tell um, us. Yeah, what no. We there's wrong. something about it that's very sad. I, I'll get. I'll get there. I'll get there. I want. I want to keep going with it. But there's something about it that I was finding very sad. Mm. Well, she had a very tragic life. Yeah, she did, and she struggled in in ways that I can relate to. But in her writing, but I think there was something about seeing her fragile on the screen in that way that mm. was um, troubling in some way. Mm. Anyway, the book is great. Great. Um, Cunning, could we have your recommendation, please? Yeah, I suppose it has to be a short novel. Um, and I have, rec- it's very recently published uh, by Grantis, a novel called The Alarming Palsy of James Orr by Tom Lee. And on the surface, it's a very simple story. A man wakes up and half of his face is sort of slightly paralyzed and doesn't work properly. So a very, very simple premise and what he does spectacularly well is create a sense of normality in that really disturbing, this is, you know, normality as just this very thin eggshell with all this underneath. And all it needs is the tiniest little crack. And, and there's a danger that things start to collapse. And he does that very surreptitiously and very offhand. And to do that, you have to be a really, really in control of your prose. And his short story collection which I read a few years ago Greenfly is, is really good and this novel I know has been a while in the making and I was just blown away when I read it it's 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 superb really oh. really superb and I again, haven't heard it's about another, it it's, it was, I think it, it, the launch was, was last night so it's just about to, to sort of hit the shops and it is deeply unnerving funny, human really touching and yeah it does it does make you think, yeah, we're all hanging on by a thread, really. And we have to, and we have to keep going. But, you know. So the opposite could. of escapism. Yeah, it's the opposite <laughs> of escapism. Yeah, and this, I don't think there's leather trousers or anything in it. But, I, yeah, it's, it's superb. What a it shame. I only read books with leather trousers in them. Um, Carrie, what about you? Oh, well, <laughs> um, I am going to recommend a short novel as well. Um, and it, not really because of the theme, but it's just because of what, I, of what I'm reading right now. Um, it's a very, very short book called The End We Start From by Megan Hunter. Uh, it, was, it was also published recently, I think this year. And it's only 140 pages. It's told in a fragmentary style, not dissimilar to your writing, Conan. I think the language is very different, but she has those sort of... Uh, the way the writing is laid out on the page. Well, I really, I really love, love the book. Yeah, and I think this what she does is the ability to 
and I can get in trouble for saying this because it comes out wrong, but sort of to write wrongly in a very right way, and that's such an extraordinarily difficult skill as well. It's, I, I, I think it's a superb book. Yeah, I um, that put it much better than I could, so I should just stop there. But um, the, the it's um, it's a story set in the near future, or what seems to be the near future, and features an unnamed narrator who has just given birth, just as London has become uninhabitable from floods. So um, there's this dystopian element, but it's the most undystopian dystopian book you'll ever read in your life it's not really about what does society look like after a flood it's um how do you be a mother when the world is ending how do you begin a life when everything else is falling apart around you and how do you have this necessarily um inward looking experience when you're forced to leave your home and go to a camp in Scotland and everyone in your life leaves you. And again, most of the story is you filling in the details of that. Um, It's very sparse. Uh, The characters don't have names. We get very few descriptions of what happens. And yet it is so full of ideas and um, beautiful things. And uh, it's also very readable. It's, It's a page turner. It so I, I would really recommend it. Yeah, can I borrow it? Yes, you add may. it to my tab. Buy it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, buy it. it. Or buy it. <laughs> buy it. I will buy it. Yes, yes. we, ne- you know we never get free books on the show ever. Ever. Yeah, always buy everything. We pay. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much, Kenan. Thank you. So that's all the time we have for today. Thanks to our interviewee, Cunnan Jones, to Rory Bowens at NTS for production, and to Eddie Knight for editing and music. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and on nts.live. You can check us out on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Um, And please do rate us and review us on iTunes. It really helps us reach more listeners and we love you for it. Yes, it it actually does help. And it seems pretty desperate to plea every week. But but please do review us if you like us. Um, If you don't like us, please don't review us. (laughs) No but you reviews. can because we're open to all criticism. We also. are a democratic process and all. Yes. So we'll be back in a month. Until then, I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright, and this is Literary Friction. <laughs>